This is the Center for Strategic and International Studies Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. This is the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk here at CSIS in Washington. Be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. My guest is Suzanne Spaulding, Senior Advisor for Homeland Security in the International Security Program here at CSIS. She also leads the new Defending Democratic Institutions Project here at CSIS. She previously served as the Undersecretary for National Protection and Programs Directorate at the Department of Homeland Security. Suzanne, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Bev. It's great to be here. Well, your project is certainly timely, and it's focused on those who may want to disrupt democracy and create distrust in democratic institutions. Now, a lot of attention was paid to 2016's election interference, but you're focused on the courts. Can you talk about how big a threat there is to the justice system and and um, sort of why this all came about? Absolutely. I think it's incredibly important that uh, Americans realize that our democracy is under attack and that this attack started long before the 2016 elections and did not end with those elections. When people talk about Russia will be back, uh, for example, for the midterm elections uh, coming up next month or for the 2020 elections, um, that implies that they left and they never did. And their goal really fundamentally is to weaken democracy. It is to weaken us and our ability to be strong uh, at home and abroad. Uh, It is designed to weaken our appeal in areas around the world where we want to and need to have influence and and be able to uh, operate. Is it only Russia doing this or are there other actors who are targeting the U.S.? Russia is the only one who is taking this kind of what I call scorched earth philosophy. So there are a number of countries who are engaged in efforts to influence U.S. policy and to some degree even to influence the thinking of the U.S. public. China is very uh, much involved in influence operations, both in the U.S. and in other places around the world. But it's a very different strategy than Putin's. So you have four focus areas for your new project. Can you walk us through them, I believe first is training state and federal judges. Well, part of that training is raising awareness. And so uh, our first order of business on this project has been to continue to look at and understand the nature of this threat. What is it exactly that Russia is doing that that worries us in terms of undermining public confidence in one of these Uh, key pillars of democracy, that is the rule of law and the justice system. And so we have uncovered um, many instances and examples of where Russia is doing just that using its propaganda outlets. So understanding that nature of that threat and then telling that story, raising awareness about that and, and raising awareness with the general public, but Uh, really importantly for the stakeholders, for the people involved in the process and the system. And that's, Bev, you're absolutely right, where our efforts to train state and federal judges 
are very important. We want them to understand that there is this nation-state adversary that has its sights on undermining public confidence in the independence, impartiality, and competence of our justice system, that, and that they need to be aware of that, that Russia may use the techniques that it used in the run-up to the elections, which includes cyber, malicious cyber activity, as well as the use of social media and other propaganda outlets like RT and Sputnik to spread their narrative. And for folks who don't know, RT and Sputnik are two uh, Russian government-owned and operated media outlets that are on some cable systems in this country, right? Exactly. RT stands for Russia Today. There's another area that you're focused on, and that's reemphasizing civics education. Can you talk about that? Because I know that's something that has come up at times. Uh, I believe it is former Justice Sandra Day O'Connor who has talked a lot about the need uh, for the uh, for American education to re-engage on civics education. That's exactly right, Bev. And I think there has been a lot of discussion around renewed emphasis on civics education in the context of Russian disinformation and information warfare because we need to build public resilience against these narratives. What Putin does is exploit weaknesses of our own making. So he will dive into divisive issues uh, like immigration or racial injustice and drive that wedge further, adding fuel to the flames of division uh, within our country. And And doing so in an effort to undermine the public's belief in the concept of democracy Mm -hmm. and the institutions of democracy. So Putin is exacerbating what was already a decline in uh, public attitudes and confidence about democratic institutions. And so what we need to do uh, among the many ways in which we are trying to counter this effort is we need to help the American public understand the value of democracy, why it's important, and why these institutions are important. Why do we treasure the concept of an independent and impartial judiciary, for example? Have we forgotten the I, importance of this? Is it just that lack of civics education? Or have we just taken it for granted for so long that we haven't paid attention where there may be threats to it? Right. I think it is more the latter. Um, I think it is a sense of complacency. We have uh, you know, generations that have not had to fight for democracy, that did not live through uh, 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 times in which we saw demonstrated the uh, weaknesses and dangers of c- communism and authoritarianism and totalitarianism. And, and so I think there is a sense of complacency that comes from the luxury of not having to defend, to think deeply about what it is that we stand for and to fight to defend those principles. What Uh, Vladimir Putin is doing is not necessarily new, but I want to circle back to something you raised just a moment ago, and that's the influence of social media. What he's doing is not new, but now it's ever-present because 
so many people are online. They have Twitter accounts. They have Facebook accounts. Um, they're on. They're online all the time. So, you know, the target audience is there for him to capitalize on. That's exactly right. the The scale and scope of this is really what's unprecedented. And the intelligence community's report back in January of 2017 made that very clear. This is, you know, inf- propaganda is not a new tool for states looking to uh, assert their national interests. But social media is giving Russia uh, an opportunity to do this at scale and in a way that is uh, increasingly difficult to identify, detect, and, and counter. It almost sounds like it's a type of cyber warfare, and they're, they're fighting this war, and I don't know if we're if we've realized that it is actually a battle that we need to be fighting as if it were a, a true cyber war. So it's interesting because Russia does very much think of cyber and cyber war as including information operations. Whereas we have not traditionally. We think of cyber as having to do with IT networks. And 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 I think that's a mistake. Uh, and so I will admit that at, in the run-up to the 2016 elections, as the undersecretary at DHS responsible for cybersecurity and critical infrastructure protection, as we started focusing on protection of our election infrastructure. Meaning fighting against hackers, people hacking into exactly. the voting that system. Exactly. That was our focus, right? Was that looking at how could we protect all of the various aspects of our election infrastructure from malicious cyber activity, meaning hacking into the networks, and a lot of focus on the voter registration databases. But even as we did that, we understood that what we were, what was the greatest risk, was less that a number of votes would be changed to change the outcome of a national election than that. Malicious cyber activity, particularly around voter registration databases, could cause disruption on Election Day that would cause the American public to question the legitimacy of the outcome of those elections. And that's an information warfare uh, strategy more than a traditional cyber hacking strategy uh, enabled by malicious cyber activity. So we we have. We have not traditionally organized around that kind of threat, particularly information operations targeting inside the United States, targeting the U.S. population. The folks we normally look to protect us against adversaries overseas, Defense Department, intelligence community, are really uh, either barred by law or policy or our culture from interfering in public opinion inside the United States, right? And the FBI traditionally has a counterintelligence mission that is more law enforcement and spy versus spy oriented. We really are not organized uh, to bring the whole of nation approach that's required to counter information warfare targeting our own population. So let's talk about some of the recent examples of interference. There's the Lisa case from January 2016 that was in Berlin but reported on here. There's the Twin Falls, Idaho 2016 story that a lot of people may remember about Syrian refugees who were accused of raping a five-year-old girl that 
turned out not to be Syrian refugees. And then there was the case in 2015, the story about an undocumented worker uh, involved in a in a case, in a shooting case in the San Francisco Bay Area that became a big story during the 2016 election because it involved immigration. Talk about those. Right. So again, Putin leaning into divisive issues that if Russia went away tomorrow, these issues would continue to be divisive and and issues that uh, as Americans, we need to continue to work on and discuss and debate. Um, but we have an adversary who is coming in and adding uh, fuel to the flames of those divisive issues uh, with, again, the specific intent, not of helping us be better, but to weaken us. So the issues that they weigh in to in other contexts around immigration, around racial injustice, for example, uh, when they bump up against the criminal justice system, become uh, very good targets for undermining public trust in that justice system and for accusing uh, prosecutors and judges of simply being part of the political structure. So that's what we've seen. That The Lisa case that you referenced was in January of 2016, where a young girl of Russian heritage made up a story about being abducted by uh, refugees. And uh, the Russian government wound up getting involved in that case and helping through its uh, social media uh, structure, spurring protests in the streets against the prosecutor for failing to prosecute a crime that never happened. And Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, actually came out and accused the German authorities of covering this up. And the prosecutor and the, uh, of covering this up in order to protect the political leadership for their soft on crime or soft on immigrants um, policies. That was in Germany. But fast forward six months to the summer of 2016, and now we're in Twin Falls, Idaho, where, as you say, there were these wild exaggerations, uh, allegations of Syrian refugees raping a young girl at knife point. And even though it was full of falsehoods, the uh, social media context became so intense. And a group called Secure Borders went, uh, tried to organize rallies in Twin Falls, just like we had seen in Berlin in the Lisa case. Secure Borders was not a group of concerned uh, Idaho Falls citizens. It was Russians operating out of the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, uh, pretending to be uh, Americans and, again, whipping up uh, anti-immigrant sentiment and accusing the judge and the prosecutor in that case of being corrupt and covering up a crime by <laughs> refugees. So, as you point out, there, I mean, there are many instances. Kate Steinle, who was tragically killed in um, San Francisco, um, the jury ultimately found that the uh, uh, undocumented immigrant who was holding the gun, that it was an accident, found this gun, picked it up, and it went off. Well, of course, the social media accounts affiliated with pushing the Russian narrative went off the charts with indignation. Again, that the system has failed us. And, and what Secure Borders and Twin Falls said is, you know, they're putting refugees above, above Americans, uh, undermining public's confidence that the judicial system is, is impartial and, and independent and, and about finding the truth. 
But how do you combat this? Because these stories went literally around the world on the Internet before, as the old saying goes, the truth could actually get its pants on. Exactly. How do you fight that? Yeah. So so again, there are a number of ways that you've got to go about doing this. Um, I think one of the most important is transparency. So that's our effort to continue to uh, help people understand this threat and how far it goes and that it is not just about elections. And these are the kinds of things that Russia is doing, that that programming on RT and Sputnik has a an unrelenting narrative that our justice system is unalterably broken and corrupt and hypocritical. Um, they take a kernel of truth and then they wrap around that um, disinformation and, and in some cases fabrication uh, and push this narrative. So telling the story is important, helping people understand how it happens. Working with the social media platform companies to help them be able to use their technology, their tools and their reviewers to identify these things and where appropriate, remove them, but at a minimum alert Americans to what they're reading. And then, as I say, building public resilience so that the American public at the end of the day just has to be more discerning in how it uh, takes in information. Um, And finally, working with those, in our case, directly involved with the justice system, countering, getting, uh, being prepared to respond quickly Mm -hmm. when these things come up is, is one of the most important things we can do. As you say, these conspiracy theories are going to take off very quickly. We need to be very quick in responding. Let me follow up just on one thing. Do social media companies have a unique responsibility to try to protect, or if not protect, at least alert the American public uh, about these kinds of false stories that get their start um, on these platforms? I think they do. And I think they are increasingly aware that they have this at least social responsibility. And I think they uh, anticipate that if they are not mindful of this social responsibility, that they may well wind up with a legal responsibility. So I think I think the social uh, media platform companies, for the most part, are trying to step up and do what's right here. It's tricky because we, I, I don't think free speech is a weakness. I think free speech is one of our greatest strengths. Um, but we have to, we have to then be responsible about that. Uh, but we want to make sure that uh, and make sure it's not used against us. Well, to and to make sure that that in fact we have. Uh, a robust marketplace of ideas, but that we are smart about understanding who is presenting these ideas and with what motivation, right? So uh, so I'm a big believer in transparency being our first line of defense. I think there may well be situations in which it's appropriate to take things down um, from these social media platforms, but I do worry that if we, for example, start removing all hate speech, that we will go back to thinking that hatred is not present in this country. Uh, And we will, uh, and I think that would be a mistake. Uh, I think it's important to understand what's going on, even domestically. And so at a minimum, I've encouraged some of my uh, associates uh, affiliated with social media platforms to, if they're going to take down hate speech, for example, to at least tell us about what it is that they're taking down. What is the scale of it? What is the nature of it? 
um, because I think it's important for us to be able to uh, uh, address some of those issues in our country. A reminder, you're listening to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. I'm Beverly Kirk. We're talking about defending democratic institutions with Suzanne Spaulding, Senior Advisor for Homeland Security in the International Security Program here at CSIS. Follow us on Twitter, at Smart Women. I'm at Beverly Kirk. And follow Suzanne at Spaulding Says. And let me spell that, S-P-A-U-L-D-I-N-G-S-E-Z. I want to look kind of uh, ahead uh, and also circle back to something you said earlier. You said that this is ongoing. It, it never stopped. So the midterms are coming up in November. Uh, is Russia trying to interfere with them this time around? Uh, have you seen cases where there is the, the same kind of activity that we saw in 2016? So yes and no. Um, according to the folks at DHS who are looking again at election infrastructure and the prospect of malicious cyber activity, uh, I think what they've said publicly is that they're, they're, they're not yet seeing malicious cyber activity that appears to be coming from Russia you know, to, to hack into key nodes of election infrastructure. We have seen, apparently, there have been public reports of um, attempts to hack into individual members of Congress, uh, and I think even some uh, candidates who are not already incumbents. And so I think, you know, election campaigns, in addition to state and local election officials, campaigns need to be very cognizant about the nature of this threat and making sure that they're engaging in effective cyber hygiene. And there's some good materials out there, including an election campaign cybersecurity handbook from a group that I work with, uh, that I'm involved with up at Harvard in the, at the Belfer Center, the Defending Digital Democracy Project. Um, but I, I think in terms of the broad social media effort, my sense is that Russia is feels that it's doing just fine with the, all of the efforts it has underway to stir up dissension and chaos and 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 um, cynicism within this country. And so I think they will work hard at trying to depress turnout uh, in many places. Um, again, by pushing this narrative that the whole system is broken, that it's rigged, et cetera. I think they will continue to just weigh in on both sides of issues as they do. Um, if, if you think Russia's coming in on your side and therefore it's okay, you have to understand they're also weighing in on the other side. Uh, they're pushing both sides and and in most cases trying to to increase the intensity of division within this country. Um, and I think they, they my sense is that, that they think that is working very well for them uh, in these divisive times. And they may not choose sides specifically in these upcoming midterms, uh, but be content with simply having people, uh, particularly afterwards, question it's almost outcomes. as if they wound up a clock and just let it go and and they've sown so much distrust that they don't they almost don't need to do anything else and, and but they continue to sow those seeds of distrust i mean their activity has not really let up um but we don't have a national two-person election in which you know they're going to choose sides so i think they're activity around the midterms is going to be different. Have they tried to interfere with the Mueller investigation? You know, we haven't seen any 
public reporting of that. Uh, but I, 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 in terms of malicious cyber activity, I, you know, I, I would be surprised if they aren't trying very hard to hack in and learn what Mueller has and what their investigation team is doing. And I have to believe that they are have taken every step they can take to make sure that their information is secure, that their systems are secure. But absolutely they have weighed in in the information operations. Uh, they, they are out there with their social media uh, accounts undermining the credibility of Mueller, of DOJ, of FBI, of Comey, of these investigations. And I think it is a reflection both of their broader strategic, let's undermine confidence in the rule of law and the justice system, but in this case also, of course, a very tactical, uh, depending on what Mueller is going to find, let's be prepared to, let's have laid the seeds for undermining his credibility and the credibility of his investigation. And one more justice-related question. We just went through uh, a very divisive and controversial confirmation process with now Justice Kavanaugh. Any Russian influence efforts in that situation? Well, once again, I think we what we saw was Russian social media fanning the flames of what was a very divisive process. Um, and again, exploiting divisions that are not of their making, uh, but that, uh, again, would exist if the Russians went away tomorrow, but they are definitely fanning the flames. And we saw that. If you, uh, There's a terrific uh, website, Hamilton 68, which is um, uh, comes out of the German Marshall Fund and the Alliance for Secure Democracy, which tracks uh, several hundred Russian affiliated uh, social media accounts or accounts that push Russian uh, narratives. And Kavanaugh trended very high uh, on the issues and topics that they were um, pushing Mm -hmm. and writing about. So, uh, you know, it's it's a challenge for us for as we try to get people to focus on what Russia is doing and how Russia is exacerbating the division and that they're trying to convince everyone that judges are just political. Um, in the wake of a very political process for nomination of a Supreme Court justice, people will often say to me, why should we worry about the Russians? They're a small, you know, compared to what we and our political leadership uh, are doing to undermine confidence in the rule of law or in the independence and impartiality of the justice system. And one last question here. You kind of touched on it, and I want to want to push a little bit on it. How do you make all of this relevant to the average person who, you know, I just look at Twitter to get you know, information, maybe they don't have time to watch the news or listen to the news, but they have their phone with them. So let me see what's on my Twitter feed. Uh, Beyond that, how do you make what you're talking about really relevant and resonate with people? Right. So I think it's important to acknowledge, uh, as I say, that we have a lot of issues that we need to work on as Americans, uh, including you know, racial injustice in our justice system, including uh, complex issues around immigration and how uh, 
immigrants and refugees are treated in our justice system, including the process by which we confirm uh, our judges in the federal judiciary or elect judges at the state level. Uh, there are lots of issues around our justice system where we are not necessarily living up to our aspirations. And, uh, and so I think it's important to acknowledge that and that we need to work on that. I don't think that means we do not stand up and fight against an adversary determined to exacerbate those issues uh, and add fire instead of light uh, with the express purpose of weakening us, right? So um, even if you think RT, for example, uh, tells a side of the, st of the story that isn't being told elsewhere, uh, I, again, I would urge uh, folks to think about what is Russia's motivation? Is Putin doing this to make us better? Is that is that what Putin is about? He's trying to help us live up to our aspirations? I think not. Absolutely not. Putin's objective here is to create cynicism. And ultimately, it is to make us think that our system is no better than his, than his corrupt system in Russia. And because once we do that, then we start shrugging our shoulders at the imperfections of our institutions. We stop holding them accountable to live up to what our aspirations should be for them. And then the institutions stop trying to live up to our aspirations and our expectations. And therein lies the unraveling of our democracy. And on that perfectly uplifting note. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Suzanne Spaulding has been our guest and really appreciate this, even though what you've had to say is scary and depressing. Thanks for having me, Bev. And uh, I, listen, I think we, we can counter this. We just need to wake up to the fact that it's happening. All right. Thanks, Suzanne. And thank you for being here. Remember to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Beverly Kirk. We're at Smart Women. And you can follow Suzanne at Spalding Says. Thank you for listening. For more information, go to CSIS.org and subscribe to our podcasts.